Hello, everyone, and welcome back to How to Tickle Yourself. I'm your host, Duff McDonald, along with my co-host, Matt McButter. I'm sure that many of you know this, but for those who don't, the majority of my writing career has been spent covering Wall Street, consulting, and Silicon Valley. I also went to the Wharton School as an undergraduate studying finance. So I have thought a lot about valuation and the numbers we assigned to this company or that one. And then, very abruptly, I lost interest in all of that. But it wasn't just in finance. I actually lost interest in quantifying anything at all. When we seek to quantify things, we're working in the realm of abstraction and superficial description. Numbers cannot get at the essence of a thing. Ever. In the blink of an eye, I decided that I wasn't going to write about the things I'd spent my entire career writing about ever again. So it was actually quite a shock to me when this week's guest somehow roped me back into talking about companies and the valuations we place on them. His name is Uni Krishnan. He's a kind of business philosopher who's consulted for some of the world's largest companies about what they really are and how we should think about them. More interestingly, he managed to find a way to express the purpose of a company using Vedantic philosophy, non-dual, timeless, borderless. And when he talks about leadership, he talks about consciousness as well. He wants us to stop thinking about companies as money machines and to start thinking about them as what he calls living machines. It's great stuff, and we're glad to have him. Welcome to the podcast, Uni. Thanks, Duff. At the present moment, my love, my dear, oh, everything's connected. This life, this world, it's all right now, right here. Right now, right here. Right now, right here. So why don't we dive right in? You have this concept of the living machine, which is what caught my attention in the first place, and which you've spoken to a lot of corporate leaders around the world about. You want to tell us about it and how it's distinguished from uh, what you call the money machine, which is the more traditional way people have thought about companies? Thanks, Duff. Uh, A pleasure to be on your podcast, and uh, thanks for the opportunity um, well, uh, it's very simple. I think most companies uh, look at performance from a purely reductionist, analytical, and material perspective, which is in the short term. And uh, in, in, in a financial language, that is really the short-term cash flows, which is roughly 30% of a company's overall value. However, most companies have a very large proportion of value, which is 70% or more, which lies in perpetuity. And perpetuity value is usually not uh, discussed oddly uh, in the boardroom. And uh, most of perpetuity value comes from the invisible stuff inside the company, which arises out of consciousness, mindset, purpose, trust, culture, and creativity. Um, bringing this uh, sharp contrast between 
what lies in the invisible domain, the irre irreplaceable domain, um, the infinite domain has been our line of work for the last 18 years. So, Matt, you have been involved in a number of startups. Why don't we just start from the beginning? Have you, do you, how much have you uh, heard discussed or discussed about the, you know, beyond five years projections as a portion of the company's value? Oh, well, I mean, in the startup world, that that doesn't really factor into it, right? Because the assumption in the startup world is, you know, 90% or more of the startups won't be around in five years. So those long-term projections, uh, you know, they don't even come into it. Uh, startups, though, do tend to get valued more based on market value than anything else. And that has to do with, you know, the industry that they're in and the hype and the founders and track record of the founders, um, things like that, these more intangibles. Because when you're valuing a startup, even doing cash flow projections, any type of sales projections, it, it's all, and, and I mean, everyone knows this from the, from the VCs to most of the founders themselves, it's all, it's all fiction, right? It's all just made up. Everybody. So I mean, Duff, you'd say anything in the future is fiction, but you know, certainly these, these types of trying to value a company based on net present value, based on some future sales projections are wrapped up on so many assumptions based on assumptions, based on assumptions. So Uni, your work is more focused on large companies, right? On an established company. Established companies, but oddly enough, I was listening to this very fascinating talk by Peter Thiel um, on uh, precisely our subject, which is he talks about in the video about uh, PayPal's valuation when it was done in the early 2010s or something, or around the early 2000s, I don't remember the date. And he, and he distinctly talks about the fact that a lot of value attributed to PayPal was really in the in the perpetuity valuation and the infinite valuation of the company. So yeah, there are startups, I believe, who are beginning to get a sense of this. But in general, I would tend to agree with Matt. It's mostly hype uh, stories of myths about the founders, which create a kind of uh, a projection of uh, the company's value. And Terranos being a great example, isn't it? Yeah, that is a really good example. <laughs> Right, <laughs> uh, almost a paragon for those for the uninitiated. Theranos is Elizabeth Holmes, the sort of impossible machine that was going to be able to, with a, a small sample of your blood, do you know hundreds of different tests, which was was only ever fiction in in the founders' heads. So let's get back to the living machine idea. Although I've gone anti quantification, we'll we'll entertain it for. The, purposes of this conversation, we've had this same discussion before. You basically say you tie the quality of consciousness with 70% of a firm's uh, enterprise value. And tell us, tell us yeah. what that means. Well, um, what it means essentially at a very logical level, before I go into the details of it, is that any company in the world, whether it's a startup, whether it's a company in the mature maturing phase or an established company, uh, roughly 70 to 80% of the assets which create value are off the books of the company. That's a plain and simple fact, which is well known in corporate finance. 
and modern management. We have known it for more than 20 years, and that continues to accelerate outside the balance sheet to the point where that a company like Airbnb or any of these companies, literally it's 90% of the balance sheet. So this is one side of the equation. Uh, I will call it the source of value side, okay? The other side of the equation is what I call the impact of value side, which is really where value resides in the company. And if you look at a good discounted cash flow model, it has roughly 70 to 80% of cash flows in the infinite future, which is called as perpetual value by the very phrase being perpetuity for infiniteness. And therefore, that's the impact value. So what we found out over the last 18 years is that companies turn a blind eye to the fact that the source of value, which accounts to roughly 80%, and the impact of value, which is roughly, again, 80%, oddly, they don't see the connection. And we said, hey, this should change. And we need to show the connection between source and impact, therefore leading to the term from the invisible to the infinite. Okay, so then what does that mean? So if someone says, I buy, I buy this idea, therefore, what are you telling me to do? What we are telling people to do is to stop looking at the linear, mechanical, analytical approach to understanding a company's performance. Rather, look at the non-linearity which lies in the compounding effects which in the invisible assets can create especially consciousness, assumptions, uh, our cognitive construct, right? The, the culture, the creativity, all of it has uh, dramatic compounding effects which are deeply uh, part of the fabric of those assets. Those compounding effects have huge non-linearity embedded in them. By not seeing the non-linearity in them, and just focusing on the linear mechanistic reductionist on approach to seeing the short-term cash flows, one is being blind to 70 to 80% of existential value of the firm. And that is really myopic and maybe borderline stupid. So when you say when one is doing this type of you know value calculation or you know value assessment, do you mean one being, I mean, potentially an investor? And that the it's the investor that should be looking at that because no. you know the the investor is typically you know they have their yeah time horizon and investment horizon and they want to get their re- return on the investment and so on. We have never worked with investors. We have always worked with asset owners, uh, the owners of okay. the companies, especially, and owners of companies, as you can imagine, Matt, have a huge vested interest to ensure that the long term wealth which can be created from a company which is roughly 70 to 80 percent of cash flows is safeguarded towards the next generation of the family and uh, this intergenerational wealth is the real wealth of the family so to speak so by not taking care of that intergenerational wealth the company would be really uh, you know foolish to squander that by allowing risks to 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 sort of propagate within the mindset, the consciousness, the purpose, the trust, and the culture and the creativity of the organization. So the answer to uh, the short answer to the question is, asset owners are our principal customers or clients. So 
you're suggesting take your eyes off the quarterly, your obsession away from quarterly results and towards this stewardship of the consciousness derived value of a company. But what does that actually mean? So you say, tell these people over here to stop doing this and start doing that. What, like, like what, what, how does it play out practically speaking? Let me explain. So uh, I think it's a great question because we have been fed over the many, many years that, uh, that the analytical reductionist model, which uh, sort of, uh, I think, holds, holds most of us hostage, that many short terms make a long term. I'm sure you've mm-hmm. heard it from many finance directors, this wonderful statement. But it's extremely foolish. It's the other way around. A great long-term reservoir of value, which is 70 to 80% of value, is is a reservoir from which many short terms arise. Mm. We got it completely wrong. We thought by connecting small little pieces of short terms, we will go to the infinite. Precisely wrong. By arising, by by continuously nourishing the infinite, we shall ensure that the short-term performance is taken care of regularly. This is a 360-degree different view that we need to sort of look at because we have been going the other way. The second difference is that we have been with certainty as the model and linearity as the model. Uh, neither of them. Do, uh, are are real in that sense because most of the companies which uh, continuously report earning guidance have usually turned out to be companies which have been extremely fraudulent. Uh, GE being a great example of it after many years being hailed as an exemplar of corporate management and excellence has been found to have defrauded its books systematically. So we need to get away from this linearity of performance except as a nature there is only the business plan, which is a figment of imagination of the Excel sheets, the fast food of modern management, which produces a linear projection. Right. So back to your point about a series of short terms adding up to a long term, that gets us to this whole idea of of unity and whether the whole is the sum of the parts or the whole is more than the sum of the parts. Beautifully said, Duff. I think the whole is more than the sum of the parts, it is infinite. And rather than seeing that we have gotten so accustomed to see the small bits, and especially the false sense of certainty which we buy into from the analytical aspect of seeing that that small bit, this is absolutely the wrong way to go about. And I think company after company, including Boeing, General Electric, Kodak, General Motors, you look at any of these great companies, American companies, uh, they have uh, bought into this false paradigm of success and performance, which has eventually led to only one thing, which is deep trouble or bankruptcy. So as I said at the beginning, um, you're clearly drawing on some ancient Indian philosophy and wisdom here uh, to inform this idea of the living machine. Can you tell us how the two came together for you? 
because it is not very often that one hears the um, the thoughts or ideas of something like Vedanta in a corporate finance conversation. <laughs> well, I, I will not be able to recount the whole story on a, a brief podcast like this, but maybe I make it really, really short. Very, very early in my childhood, I used to hear Vedanta, especially the Gita, uh, being interpreted by, uh, by a very famous Swami called Swami Chinmayananda at my ancestral home. And uh, much of it was a discussion about invisible aspects of uh, human existence and the infinite nature of our journey. And these were things which were well embedded into the Vedantic system of thought. Um, Indian time horizons lie in many millions of light years. We are familiar with some of that from a wisdom tradition perspective. But uh, as I came into contact with the world, especially the world of business, when I studied management, all I could see was finiteness and also reductionist, linear, uh, mechanistic approaches. Uh, while I do not have quarrels with them because uh, all of those mechanistic approaches have uh, endowed all of us with remarkable material quality of life, we cannot sort of dispose from it or we cannot dismiss it. That would be rather foolish. Uh, what we do not understand is that the machine elements draw their strength and their vitality from the living. And we have a world where the machine drives the living. Mm. But ideally, it is the living that should drive the machine. And if that would be the case, the nature, the quality of mind would drive the quality of life. But we have the material quality of life today driving the quality of mind. And much of our woes, much of our troubles, mental illness, um, you know, mental distress, uh, burnouts of people, all of this have some way to do with the fact that we live in a world where the machine drives the living. And, and that's really what I thought when I, when I went into organizations. I could see the extreme nature of distress, the extreme unhappiness, the lack of joy, the lack of meaning. And all of that, obviously, if people are getting burned out, how difficult is it to imagine that if you have burned out people, you will end up with a burnt out company? Right. Matt, does this resonate with you, the idea of the – it's basically a – a uh, tail wagging the dog kind of thing, right? How getting sort of trapped into an algorithmic approach to to business or decision making, and suddenly the artificial construction, the company is has got control of its people, mm-hmm. and it's not even real. Yeah, I know what you mean by not when you say it's not even real. But the thing that this has been provoking in in my mind anyway is how you know people identify a lot of the time with their job, like in, in the West, especially, um, you know, identify with their job and with their company. And that's a huge portion of someone's identity. I mean, you ask, you ask me to describe someone in the neighborhood, right? Like, oh, you know, this guy that, you know, I, I ran into the first thing I'm going to say is, oh, you know, he's a lawyer at such and such a firm, or he's a teacher at such and such a school. And so our work life, these days is is so much a part of of people's identity that 
they get kind of shoehorned into these into these identities. That's I mean, I know it's not exactly what what you're saying, Uni, but yeah. So he's talking though about the numbers, the the mm-hmm. money part of the machine driving the living part of the machine. Yeah. Have you found that you have sort of suddenly become aware that the numbers have got the whip hand, right? So yeah. whatever you're doing, suddenly you're answering to the numbers as opposed to the other way around. That's what you're saying, right, Uni? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, no, but 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 sorry, I, I went off on a bit of a tangent there with just, you know, that's that's what this provoked in my in my head. But in terms of, yeah, the the numbers, like there are there are certainly companies and cultures that are so extremely numbers driven and investors in the startup world as well that just want to see just want to see the results. And and it's because of this return and these time horizons that they want. So, you know, they're not so interested in looking at it in any kind of nonlinear way. And how else do you measure performance of your money when you're putting your money to work other than, you know, I've invested my money. I've put it here when I could have put it in real estate, stocks, bonds, crypto, any other asset class. The asset that I've chosen to put it in is this startup and these people that I've invested in. Therefore, I want my return on that investment not to be any longer than it's going to take me to get my return on on some other asset class. So that that certainly in the startup world, which I can speak to more, you know, drives certainly drives some of the decisions. So Uni, like you're we're speaking to you from India now. I would expect that you would get a more um open-minded audience in India for the reasons we've already discussed. What is the Western management uh, world's response to these ideas? Duff, uh, I would think that post the financial crisis and the the corona crisis, I think in any case, there has been a huge debate about what is the form of capitalism and how capitalism needs to be reformed in the West, which has been a raging debate for quite some time now. And one of the principal aspects of the reform of capitalism has been around whether performance of a company needs to be judged solely on quarter-to-quarter numbers. This has been a very burning issue, which has been discussed in several elite forums and thought leaders, etc. I do believe that whether it is East or West or India or the US, in fact, I would argue the other way, Duff, that if you would need to do something for the iconic institutions of any country's companies, and would like to safeguard them or inoculate them for the future so that their long-term viability is not compromised. The way that you need to look at performance needs to profoundly shift from this linear mechanistic approach, which has been fed to us through shareholder value, shareholder value maximization, which was popularized about 50 or 60 years ago, and move it into a zone of the invisible and the infinite. And the, the the invisible and the infinite contains all the compounding effects, and Matt would agree uh, that the compounding effect of financials are perhaps the greatest force in financials, which pr- produce disproportionate uh, returns for the investors. Having not seen those disproportionate returns and investors simply looking at the near-term, short-term linear returns is the foolishness that companies have... Uh, have put on uh, the investing publics, and that is a great disservice which we need to we need to stop because I think companies can uh, uh, obviously 
take a narrative or a value creation thesis which allows people to experience the fruits of compounding effects. And compounding effects, I would say Warren Buffet or any of the great investors are all harvesting the compounding effects of uh, great companies' performances, which go back to the investors. So I would say that it's not India, it's not the US, it's not UK. I think it's a common human problem, maybe well expressed through the marshmallow test. Duff, you know, perhaps. No, what is that? I know this one. <laughs> okay, Matt. No, you, you tell, you go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a very simple psychological test which was done many years ago, I believe, in the, in the 50s or the 60s, where kindergarten students were offered, you know, to take one marshmallow from a table. If they waited, they could have three marshmallows after some period of time if they had sufficient self-awareness and self-control. What we have lost, Duff, is the ability to self-regulate to control our urges for instant gratification. And by controlling the urges for instant gratification, you are rewarded through compounding effects. Shouldn't be very difficult, whether it's the US, UK, or India. Right, three marshmallows for everybody. So, But what if I take that first marshmallow, (laughs) instead of eating it, I invest it, and by the time I waited around for those three marshmallows, I actually had four. We'll hunt you down and kill you and take your four. <laughs> Uni, it's been a pleasure. Um, so uh, listeners can find you. Uh, your firm is called Long Wealth. It's called Long Wealth. That's right. Which reflects the compounding effects of financials. Correct. We'll include some information in the show notes, but um, expect to hear more from him around these parts. Like I said at the beginning, he's the first person in many years who's gotten me interested in talking about company valuations. Again, I wasn't sure I ever would. It's because he's thinking about them in a really fascinating way that, um, you know, transcends everything I criticized in recent years about, as he says, analytical reductionist methods. Those aren't going to get us anywhere except to a pile of numbers and we want to go somewhere else. So thanks, Uni. We really appreciate it. It It was great to have you. Thanks, Uni. Pleasure. Pleasure, gentlemen. Thank you. Cheers. So that was Van Morrison, uh, one of my favorite artists ever. Uh, The song's called And the Healing Has Begun. It's from his album, Into the Music. I I think I understand a little more about that now. Basically, we need to start, you know, loosening our obsession with, uh, as Uni says, all this short-term data that we're so certain about, right? Yeah. Even though we get shown, it gets demonstrated again and again and again that the stuff we're so certain about did not come to pass. Mm-hmm. So the the amount of energy and focus that we expend on these short-term things at the expense of longer-term thinking, like he says, is just astounding. No, I, I mean, there's their friction there, though, is going to be, you know, time value of money is something that investors are always looking at. Again, I'm looking at it kind of from this investor perspective. Totally. And I think patient investors in the startup space are, are, are understanding that it takes a while to kind of grope around and find product market fit, to, you know, to, to get that product to the right place. 
requires some experimentation and some trial and error. There's ways to do it efficiently. You know, there's manuals for this stuff. And good founders generally understand this and, you know, move along, test different markets. They understand how to uh, validate different customer groups and stuff. And it's not about the numbers at the beginning and it's going to maybe take a while. And Mm -hmm. so good startup investors are generally fairly patient. Once that starts growing though, and once the flywheel starts turning and sales start to become regularized, that's when that next group of investors expects numbers. Right. right. And, and starts right. looking at those, you know, quarterly numbers more than anything else. I do think it's interesting what, you know, his whole concept of looking at the things that don't make it onto the balance sheet for sure. I mean, that is, that is interesting. And I think more from a humanist and, and society, good of society kind of perspective, I, I get it more right. Where it's like these machines, these corporations aren't just there for the, enri- shouldn't just be seen as for the enrichment of of individuals. Like they're, they do a lot more for, for our society, right? Like they do provide meaning for people. They do provide, you know, income for, for, for people and, and a living for people. And the, the one thing I, we didn't get to with Uni that I I wanted to maybe talk about with you in this is, I mean, there are certain aspects of, of capitalism that, that require major reform. And one of the biggest ones, the one that drives me the craziest is the income disparity between, you know, the CEOs and the, you know, frontline workers. And mm-hmm. I mean, or any workers, particularly, I mean, I, I saw this thing on online a couple of days ago and it, uh, after um, the, you know, they voted to unionize one of the Amazon warehouses. And it said, if you can afford your own personal space program, you can afford to pay your workers more than minimum wage. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think I have uh, more than a few chapters in the golden passport on that um, income disparity. And absolutely. You know, we let, uh, we let power sort of accrete to uh, a really small slice of our uh, society and they're greedy motherfuckers, right? It's all justified also in the name of, I mean, it's particularly in the USA, it's all justified in the name of like, it's like capitalism versus socialism. It's like, right. well, if you're not, if you don't believe in this, then you're a socialist. Therefore, like you're the worst person in the world. Right. And, <laughs> and now you're anti-American. Yeah. You know, a book that I pitched to, Harper Collins uh, several years ago, I didn't end up writing it. it was going to be called hypocrisy Inc. And it was going to be about the co-opting, you know, it's just what, what's the new flavor they've co-opted now, right? Sustainability. Oh, we're sustainable. It's like, what are you sustaining your own salaries? Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, um, Uni makes a great point. It's like, if we, if we could all start thinking differently about these things, um, we could do right by each other more than we currently do. You just got to loosen the grip of the material rewards of capitalism on people. Um, you know, I, I thought COVID was going to do that to some degree. And I think it probably has that when people got a chance to slow down and be with themselves uh, a little more, they might realize that what matters to them isn't just money or uh, performance or success or something quantifiable, but simply the, you know, glory of their own existence. 
we'll see how much of that sticks. So I've got one for you, but I'm stealing it from Uni. I would steal the first one from him. I never really thought about, like, we say finite and then we say infinite, mm-hmm. right? In, uh, and he was saying infinite. Yeah. yeah. Right? I, I, and, I noticed that. Yeah. And it's like, oh, the infinite is actually the opposite of the finite. I had never really realized that it was the inversion of finite. Oh, I, I realized that. I, I, I realized that in whenever it was grade 12 math. I remember, it was finite math. I think that, and then I was like, oh, oh. finite math as opposed to. Got it. Got <laughs> it. Yeah. All right. So I got another one for you. And this isn't a traditional, um, I've got one for you, but it's something I was reading about recently. So in Vedanta, which he's talking about, right? He's talking about, you know, focusing on what really matters. So one of the key concepts in Vedanta is they say the universe is illusory, meaning. It's not the eternal uh, part of you, right? Everything is subject to change. So one of their favorite metaphors is the ocean and the wave, Mm -hmm. right? The wave is there temporarily, um, but the wave will be gone and the ocean will still be there. So in that thinking, the wave is an illusion, right? It has a momentary reality that you can, an appearance, but it will be gone, Right. So what is that? Was it real? Sure, it was real in appearance, but it's not eternal. Another one they have. Here's a quote from a book on Vedanta I was reading. The universe rises from you like bubbles rising from the sea. So same thing. Those bubbles are there. They're part of it, but it's the sea that's the reality. So one of their favorite examples of trying to get at what is real and what is not is they talk about Someone walking down a path in the darkness and let's say there's a rope hanging from a tree branch and you mistake it for a snake, right? Mm -hmm. So say you're, you're right up close to it. You're a couple of feet away and you see it and you, you flip out because you're sure it's a snake. It's happened. It's happened to everybody. That's happened to me for sure. Yeah. So when you realize that it's a rope. What has become of the idea of the snake? For you in the moment that you thought it was a snake, the reality of the snake was very real to you, Mm -hmm. right? It was a snake. It was a snake and now it's gone. And the snake not only isn't there, like you will never see it as a snake again, that particular rope. So the idea is that the universe, the appearance and form in front of you is like the snake, right? What we don't want to confuse appearances with is the eternal part of us. They're just the thing that was there until it wasn't there. And then when it's not there, it's gone. Vedantists are trying to warn us off the snake, focus on the permanence of the rope. So what is the snake here? Everything? The snake is the the apparent universe. Yeah, so everything. Right? Yeah, everything Everyth- outside of you. Everything outside of you. Exactly. Okay. On which note, we'll close this out with a little uh, Sri Aurobindo. In his book, The Synthesis of Yoga, he was talking about time. This is really interesting, too. It's basically um, a similar idea, like, what is time? 
right? If you think of it as something outside of you, it will have a certain effect on you. If you see time as something that's part of you, it will be different. So here's his quote. Time is a field of circumstances and forces meeting and working out a resultant progression whose course it measures. To the ego, it is a tyrant or a resistance. To the divine, an instrument. Therefore, while our effort is personal, time appears as a resistance. For it presents to us all the obstruction of the forces that conflict with our own. When the divine working and the personal are combined in our consciousness, it appears as a medium and a condition. When the two become one, it appears as a servant and an instrument. So time is your friend if you make it your friend. Time is not your friend if, you, if you're only focused on what you need to get done and you're not part of the flow around you. On that note, Duff, I got to go. I got to go. No, I'm just <laughs> so, Back to what Uni said, right? It's all about time and the eternity. We got to focus more on the eternal parts of us than on the things that we're in a rush about. And on which note, we'll just wrap this up right now and we'll be back to you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. At the present moment... Traveling town to town, the mystery of the motion, right here, right now, right here, right now, whoa, right here, right now. You've been listening to How to Tickle Yourself with your hosts, Duff McDonald and Matt McButter. You can help us by liking, subscribing, and sharing this podcast with others. You can talk to us and see what else is happening on Instagram and Facebook at How to Tickle Yourself. This program was recorded in Studio B of the historic Rockledge Recording Studio and the Tunnel Under Arundel. Right here, right now, our original 16-part theme music was written and recorded by the legendary Paul Reddick and Kyle Ferguson of the Sidemen, with the brilliant Steve Mariner on bass and drums and in the mixing room. The podcast is produced and distributed by Storic Media. Our editor is Andrew Steiner. Our coordinator is Samantha Abramovitz. Our producers are Kristen Verbitsky and Chuck LaBella. For more information, visit storicmedia.com. That's S-T-O-R-I-C-media.com. My love, my dear...